I, I didn't uh, realize this was going to be the case, but we actually have royalty with us today. Uh, Queen Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, would you uh, just, uh, I don't know what. Well, oh, is there one there? Are there two? Oh, my goodness. Is there, there are three. Where, where's it? Oh, there are crowns everywhere. Oh, my goodness. So uh, if, you, if you are uh, at all concerned about, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's, I, I understand it's Sister's Day for you guys, is that what it is? And so, and so uh, uh, congratulations and, and wow, uh, um, good, to, good, to see, good to see that, I, I, I guess. Well, um, well listen, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, there's, there's a really sad story, although to be honest, I'm not sure every time people read it, they recognize uh, how sad it really is. But in general, it's the story about the downfall of a king, but more precisely, it's the story about a man's blindness to his own sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul, uh, God sends King Saul to destroy a wicked group of people called the Amalekites. And God sends him with a very specific instruction not to spare any of the people, not even to spare any of the livestock. So Saul heads out with his armies. They rout the Amalekites. But then, rather than following God's commands completely, uh, King Saul brings back uh, the king of the Amalekites sort of as a trophy. And he and his men bring back the very best of the livestock as plunder. When the prophet Samuel confronts Saul about his actions, saying, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul had the audacity to respond by saying, But I did obey the Lord. Then went on to talk about all the things he'd done right and to make excuses for all the things he'd done wrong. When he finished talking, Samuel announced to him that God was removing him as king over Israel. To read this account with the Lord's heart is to read it with a deep sadness. Because the Bible is very clear, God loves his people. God loved King Saul. God prefers to forgive, he prefers to redeem. He prefers mercy to triumph over judgment. And so in his great mercy, God shows us the way he's designed us to go. He offers us the grace we need to get there. And when we blow it, as we so often do, he calls us to confess and repent of our failings so he can forgive and cleanse us of our sin. But Saul, in this episode in particular, reveals a tendency that's much too common with far too many people. A tendency to do what God says at one level, a level where, honestly, it's not that hard, but to refuse to do what God says at a deeper level where it is in fact harder and quite possibly more important. And with that thought in mind, I want us to look this morning at the next commandment as we walk through uh, this series on kingdom living, looking at the Ten Commandments together. So as we begin, would you stand with me please in honor of the Word of God? We're going to read together Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. See what the Bible has to say. This is uh, the Word of God. Will you read it with me? You shall not commit adultery. Can we read that again? You shall not commit adultery. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Last week, I pointed out that in Luther's small catechism, it begins the explanation of each of the commandments with the words, we should fear and love God. 
And I cannot stress this enough. We've been talking about it throughout the course of this series, but I want to say it again. The commandments were given by God to help us know and love Him better. The commandments were given by God to show us His will, to show us His nature, and to call us up into that will and that nature with Him. But these commandments cannot save you and never were intended to. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Only the kindness of God in Jesus can save you and restore you to God and God's purposes for your life. But once you've received the grace of God in Jesus, once you've surrendered control of your life to Jesus, then these commandments can help you know how to live as a follower of Christ. So when it comes to this particular commandment, you shall not commit adultery, the catechism responds to the question, what does this mean with the answer, we should fear and love God that we may lead a chaste and decent life in word and deed and each love and honor his spouse. Now, I got to tell you, there are very few things God calls us to that are more completely countercultural today than what God calls us to in this commandment. For example, let me just ask. When's the last time you heard anybody use the word chaste? In case you don't know, it means abstaining completely from unmarried sex. And if there is anything that's not particularly a goal in 21st century American culture, I suspect chastity may be that thing. For a lot of young people today, the social shame that used to accompany promiscuity has been replaced with social shame accompanying chastity. How do we stray so far? Why did things change so much? And is anyone today even willing to listen as God seeks to call us through His Word to His position on these matters? Now, I've taught a fair amount in the past about the reasons God's protective, so very protective of His good gift of sex. I've talked about his fascinating, comprehensive design, the very real, very deep emotional and biochemical connections established through sexual activity, the powerful and permanent neurochemical pathways that are instantly created by such intimate physical contact, all of which are precisely the reason God insists that sexual activity only occur within the protective environment of a lifelong, committed, monogamous marriage. Uncommitted extramarital sexual activity may very well exhilarate and energize in the moment. To be honest, it may exhilarate and energize someone for a lengthy period of time in their lives. But the spiritual, emotional, neurological and biochemical interconnectedness established through sexual activity by God's design guarantees that over time, uncommitted extramarital sexual activity will damage your heart and confuse your brain. And so to protect you, to protect the people around you, and to honor the beauty of His own design, God gives us the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. For the rest of my time this morning, I want to unpack that commandment just a little bit. 
As with the commandment we looked at last week, you shall not murder, this commandment is really quite short and apparently pretty straightforward, which means that most people have a tendency probably to rush right past it. And I found especially that to be especially true with unmarried people. They tend to just kind of rush right past this one. But you really need to slow down just a minute. Because just like last week, this commandment has implications beyond what's obvious on the surface. Now, with regard to this commandment forbidding adultery, at its most basic and most literal reading, the message is totally clear. Don't have extramarital sex. If you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. And don't cheat on with anybody else's spouse. As explained in the small catechism, God forbids the breaking of the marriage vow by unfaithfulness or desertion. Do not break the marriage vow. Do not violate the marriage covenant, neither yours nor anybody else's. I wonder how much thought any of us have given to this whole issue of marriage vows how much thought we give to the fact that, honestly, we tend to establish a marriage through the exchange of vows, oaths taken in public, vows taken before witnesses. And if you consider the fact that even the secular authorities down at the clerk of court's office demand signatures from witnesses who saw and heard you exchange those vows, Marriage and marriage vows are a big deal. And the vows exchanged in the marriage ritual are exchanged to acknowledge the marriage covenant. Today, our culture is not particularly fond of the idea of covenant or commitment or obligation. The truth is, the word covenant's almost vanished completely from our collective vocabulary. Such things are generally considered legalistic a form of bondage or control that threatens personal liberty. As a result, our culture tends to treat things like promises and covenants and obligations more or less like suggestions, malleable to one's changing mood, but certainly not absolutely binding. That's never how God views such things. The writer of Ecclesiastes notes, it is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. If you pay any attention to marriage vows, they tend to focus on two things, permanence and exclusivity. And interestingly enough, adultery violates both of these, which is why, by the way, divorce and abandonment are tied to adultery in the New Testament. Most people who get married vow to cleave exclusively to their marriage partner. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death finally parts them. And this commandment plainly forbids the breaking of that marriage vow, either by infidelity or, again, by desertion and abandonment. Strong words to the married, but not just to the married. The God who gave these commandments, or this commandment in particular, is the infinite and eternal God who transcends time and lives beyond it. He's the God who's actually bigger than time. The God who knows the end from the beginning, who calls things that are not as though they were. The God who orders the steps of the righteous. 
and determines the times and places people live. And so in the eyes of such a God, this commandment is binding on the unmarried as well as the married. See, if you're married right now, God expects you to be faithful to the spouse you have. And if you're not married right now, God expects you to be faithful to the spouse you might have someday down the road in the future. In other words, you're just simply flat wrong. If you think fooling around with your lab partner from chemistry class isn't adultery because neither of you are married. In the eyes of God, it's committing adultery against your future spouse and against the future spouse of the other party. Let me just go ahead and stop right there and acknowledge very clearly I understand. I am running the serious risk of offending everybody in the room. There's a good chance there's a whole bunch of Christians in here who completely agree that God forbids sex outside of marriage, but who are nevertheless totally offended that I would talk about it in church. It's also entirely possible. There are people here who don't agree at all, who consider this topic archaic and oppressive, and who are totally offended by the things I'm sharing. And finally, there's a good chance there are people here who aren't quite sure what they believe. But they're engaging in sex outside of marriage. And they're totally offended that I would stick my nose into what they consider their private business. Because who am I to tell them how to live anyway? I have no illusion whatsoever that I'm going to make any friends this morning. But I didn't come to make friends. I came to teach the Word of God. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, when I was in high school, college, and for a while out of college, I would have given anything to have a pastor who would talk to me straight about the things I was struggling with, the things I was wondering about, the things I was thinking about at that time. Statistics tell us today that professing Christians divorce at roughly the same rate as non-Christians. Cohabitate at just a slightly lower rate than non-Christians, view pornography at a slightly higher rate than non-Christians, and engage in premarital sex at roughly the same rate. Something's wrong. I remember a few years ago talking to a guy who was involved in, in, in this new ministry training program that was coming around, coming together. They they were attracting, this particular ministry was attracting gung-ho, super excited young Christians from all over the world. They were coming to take this training program to learn how to share their faith and share the gospel and witness and minister for Jesus all over the world. And the training program was a relatively lengthy program. It was like a training school. And, and when they put the curriculum together, they had one lesson on sexual purity, and that was pretty much toward the end of the course. After they ran their first group through uh, the training program, they completely rewrote the curriculum. Uh, they took the one lesson on sexual purity and made it the beginning of the course rather than the end and took it from one lesson to an entire week. You know why? They found that a ton of their students were actually involved in sexual sin while simultaneously involved in their ministry training program. It's not okay. But it's not uncommon. As a people who have been called to God through Jesus, we're not supposed to commit adultery. When did this teaching become controversial? If you're married, 
don't cheat on the spouse you have right now. And if you're not married, don't cheat on the spouse you may have someday. And by the way, if you intend someday to marry the person you're with, then please limit your sexual activity to intending to sleep with them when that day comes. If you've come to God through Jesus, then the will of God for you is clear. You shall not commit adultery. Not even just a little bit. It's not okay because you're young and virile. It's not okay because you really love him. It's not okay because you intend to marry her someday. That's precisely the sort of thinking and rationalizing King Saul tried to use in the episode with the Amalekites. But I did obey the Lord, he said, just not in everything he told me to do. God in his mercy tends to make things pretty clear. And at its most basic, most literal level, you shall not commit adultery, leaves no real room for confusion and no real room for argument. Having said that, however, God has much more in mind with this commandment than just what you find at its most basic and most literal level, which leads us to the words of Jesus found in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And once again, in just two sentences, Jesus changes everything. Turns out God is every bit as concerned with the condition of our hearts as he is with the activities of our bodies. Because God understands that what you do in your body is almost always determined by what you hold on to in your heart. Now, you may be able to force yourself from time to time to grit your teeth and obey a couple of rules for a while. But over the course of your life, you're usually going to end up doing the things you've set your heart on most. That's why the Bible urges, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart is the wellspring for your life. In other words, your whole life flows out of what's down in here. Your thoughts and your words and the stuff you do, your values and your goals and your hopes and your dreams, all that stuff that makes you, you, all that life stuff comes up and flows out of your heart. So understanding that, God calls for your heart, not just your body. And he addresses this at the heart level of lust, not just at the physical level of conduct. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that means I need to take a moment to address the issue of pornography. Thanks to the internet and related technologies, pornography is wildly pervasive today. Just think about the changes that have occurred in some of your lifetimes. 
to get the sort of visceral thrill that comes from looking at pornography 60 years ago, you'd have had to sneak around peeking in windows. A few decades ago, you had to find your older brother's stash of inappropriate magazines. A few years ago, you had to be sitting alone somewhere at a desktop. Today, pornography comes to you on your phone, on your iPad, no matter where you happen to be. And so as a result today, one in every five mobile internet searches, 20% of all mobile internet searches are for pornographic material. When a married woman finds out her husband has been looking at pornography, she invariably feels hurt and offended. She immediately feels cheated on, which frankly only makes sense because Jesus says that's exactly what's happened. Her husband has cheated on her with his eyes. He's committed adultery in his heart. And all of that's why the catechism explains not only that this commandment forbids unmarried sexual activity, but also that it requires you to live a chaste and decent life in thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. And as we learn from King Saul with the Amalekites, kind of doing some of that is really not doing any of it. In 21st century America, this commandment presents a major challenge for an awful lot of people. And I would suggest a particular challenge for unmarried millennials and Generation Zers. People who really for the first time in American history must attempt to maintain sexual purity in a culture that actually celebrates unmarried sex. Every man today on this planet must now find a way to resist the powerful draw of pornography when it's never been easier to get and never been easier to hide. The truth is, to be successful in honoring God in this commandment, many of you are going to need help. After all, in a world where you can one minute be sitting watching a perfectly innocent television show, and the next minute find yourself watching a highly provocative commercial, you're going to have to work hard to keep your mind and your body where they need to be. If you love Jesus, and if you're wise, you'll ask for help from people who love you. Certainly there are people here who love you, and we are here to help. Resurrection Church is committed to be a safe place to work through all kinds of challenges, trials, difficulties, and hard things. If you need help kicking a porn problem, if you need help restoring order to a disordered relationship, we will walk through that with you if you will let us. We'll love you and encourage you and pray with you stand with you and help you in any way we can. But what if the truth is you've already blown this one really, really badly? I mean, you left this commandment in the dust and you've never even imagined you can straighten it out.
Do those past mistakes now define you? Is that just who you are from now on? Are you just kind of stuck with it? Or is there some way you can start over? All of those questions and millions like them lead us right to the gospel. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us in three great movements. Number one, God in his love made everything and everybody. He made it for his glory, he made it for his pleasure, and he made it really, really good. Number two, we made a mess of all of it. Living for ourselves instead of God, pleasing ourselves instead of God, and in the process, we became broken and unable to fix ourselves anymore. But number three, God in his great mercy loves us anyway. He sent his son Jesus into the world to show us who he is and what he's like, to show us what we're supposed to be, and to die on a cross to pay for our sins. So we can be not only forgiven, but restored to God and his purposes for our life. If we'll only trust in Jesus, and if we'll only follow Jesus. So working together, the commandment shows you God's will for your life, and the gospel helps you get there by grace through faith in Jesus. Reconciling you to God through Jesus as Savior and Lord, giving you a fresh start every time you need it. Wiping away your sins so you can genuinely live free, liberated, forgiven lives. Changing you from the inside out, giving you power by the Holy Spirit to walk and live day by day. Very simply, here's what it means to apply the gospel to the seventh commandment. God's expectations are simple and clear. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not entertain lustful thoughts. But if you have, if you do, and if you are genuinely sorry and you don't want that to define you, if you'll confess it as sin, not trying to justify it like Saul did with the Amalekites, but acknowledging it as something you don't want in your life, God will gladly and instantly forgive you. He'll cleanse you from every conceivable stain. He'll hold you and love you, and restore you to himself. And then he'll send you back out into the world to live as his dearly loved, forgiven child. Let me just add this. Last week we talked about the commandment prohibiting murder. And I want to make sure you understand. If you've had an abortion in your past, there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus. You just need to come to him and ask. If you've committed a capital offense in your past, there's forgiveness and healing in Jesus. You just need to come to him and ask. You see, the gospel exists for people like us. Broken, fallen, imperfect people. People who haven't always done God's will. People who haven't always gotten it right. People who have, in all honesty, very often gotten it very wrong. Jesus came for people like that. 
Because God wants those people to know Him, to love Him, to live in His grace, and to walk out His purpose and plans for their lives. It really doesn't matter how badly you've blown it. If you want something different, you can start afresh this morning with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as always, for the power and the clarity of the Word of God. You, you, you don't mince words. You don't try to confuse us. In, in your mercy and grace, you show us who you are and you call us up into life and life abundant. Lord, we thank you that when we fail to come up there, you have also provided a way for us to be forgiven and cleansed and restored. I pray this morning for anybody here who in hearing simply your words in Scripture may have been convicted of actions or thoughts. And Lord, I thank you that you are ready to cleanse and forgive and restore and release. I pray that we would walk in the gospel moment by moment, day by day, grateful, ever so grateful for your love for us and your place in our lives. And Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't yet even know you as the God who does that, I pray you will draw them to yourself through Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, you will show them the hope that you lay out for them, a hope for life with you because you love them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.